Once again, a very warm welcome to you this evening um, and thank you for joining us for this service uh, from Stornoway Free Church. Before we begin the worship, I do have an intimation to read out. It's mainly for the uh, members of the congregation itself. Uh, there are two or three things on this that uh, I've been asked to intimate. Uh, first of all, by way of thanks, um, in August, at the end of August, um, a collection was made of envelopes that uh, could not have been handed in uh, and uh, that some contributed uh, amounted to over £30,000. Uh, our most sincere thanks on behalf of the Deacon's Court especially are due to all those who have contributed to the funds of the congregation over the past few months, whether it's by free will offering envelope, standing order, BACS transfer or by cheque. This is really hugely encouraging to have the support uh, that upholds the gospel financially. And at a recent meeting of the Deacon's Court, uh, it was agreed to repeat the facility for depositing free will offering envelopes. Um, and it was also agreed to use that opportunity to raise funds for the Congregation's Benevolent Fund uh, and to issue also the 2021 free will offering envelopes. If I can mention each of those just briefly, uh, regarding the free will offering envelopes, um, on Wednesday 21st October, and Saturday 24th October, the Church Hall on Kenneth Street will be open from 2pm to 4pm to receive free will offering envelopes from those who have kept them and wish now to deposit them. Uh, if you do wish to uh, avail yourself of that opportunity, uh, please come along during those times or else arrange someone to take the envelopes for you. You can also contact your district elder or deacon if you'd rather do that or can't come yourself. Now, with regard to the Congregation's Benevolent Fund, the Benevolent Fund has been uh, set up many years ago to meet with unexpected costs in uh, the community, usually in families, and that they had to face. But in more recent years, uh, due to the cumulative effect of austerity and reductions to benefit, Deacon's Court decided to support local charities like the Ilan Shear Food Bank. Uh, and I can tell you, over the months from April to June of this year, Donations totalling £3,000 were made to the food bank from the congregation's benevolent fund. Uh, we understand that the demands on food banks everywhere during the current crisis is likely to be considerable. So that means that the, the benevolent fund has been reduced because of those contributions. Uh, and we usually do augment each year the benevolent fund with a retiring collection taken at the time of harvest Thanksgiving service. Now that's not likely at all to be uh, in the church in the usual way. So um, anyone who wishes to contribute to the Benevolent Fund, uh, even though with the congregation, they're free to do so. Again, you've got that opportunity to, to do that on these same dates, 21st October and 24th October from 2 p.m. Uh, in the church hall. You can also make a contribution by forwarding a cheque made payable to Stornoway Free Church Benevolent Fund and you can send that to the Treasurer, Murdoch MacPhail, at 12A Jameson Drive, Stornoway, HS12LF. All these details are on the Facebook page notices and also on the website, so you can access them there. Thirdly, the 2021 free will offering envelopes, um, due to the current restrictions on movement and visiting homes, uh, the Deacon's Court has decided that free will offering envelopes for 2021 uh, will not be delivered to homes throughout the congregation in the usual way, but will be available for collection during these same dates and times mentioned above. 
21st and 24th of October. And we are uh, intending to repeat all of these above events, these the ones referred to, at some point either in late November or early December to give another opportunity to contribute to uh, what's been mentioned there just now. If you have any questions on that, you can please uh, contact any of your office bearers or myself or Kenny if you're unsure about any of it. So again, we give thanks to God and we give thanks to yourselves for your contribution. Now we're going to begin our service singing in Psalm number 63. That's in uh, the Sing Psalms version on page 80, Psalm 63, uh, verses 1 to 6. And we're singing to the tune, Menzer. O God, you are my God alone. I seek your face with eagerness. My soul and body thirst for you in this dry, weary wilderness. Verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 63 to the tune, Menzer. O God, you are my God alone. I seek your face with eagerness. My soul and body thirst for you in this dry from God's Word, from Ecclesiastes, sorry, first of all, from Philippians, I'm sorry, that's the first reading, is from Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, and verses 4 to 13. Philippians 4 at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in being, of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We pray God will follow with his blessing of that reading of his word. Let's now engage in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord in prayer. Lord of gracious God, we thank you that we have this opportunity once more of worshipping you together, of drawing near to you, of singing your praises and calling upon your name, and of giving our minds to your word and its teaching. We give thanks for the promise that we have been reading in your word in regard to making our concerns known to God, that you have united that with the peace of God which passes all understanding, that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we give thanks for the many wonderful promises of your word, promises that comfort our hearts in times of adversity, and promises that have been so wonderfully enjoyed through the centuries of your church's life. We thank you tonight, Lord, that we form part of that great line of believing people who reach back through the mists of time to when men, for, when men first began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, we bless you for all that you have been to your people down through these ages and for the fact that you are unchangeably the same as we come to meet with you tonight in worship. Lord, lift us, we pray, up towards those great truths that your word sets out for us. Lift our minds above that which would discourage us above the things of this present order, and especially such times as we live in, when we know that there is much that perplexes us, causes us anxiety, and brings us sometimes even to be despondent. We ask, Lord, that your truth tonight will, with its light, reach into our hearts. Shine into our darkness, we pray. Enlighten our minds in further knowledge of you and of your will and of your word. And we ask that you would be pleased to receive our worship as we offer it to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. We give thanks for our acceptance in him, for the way that you have come toward us in him, for the emphasis in your word that you who are high and holy as the Most High, that you have come to descend to us in the person of your Son, and through his wonderful incarnation and taking our humanity to himself and our sin. We bless you, O Lord, that you have come to reveal to us and to execute in us that redemption that you purposed from all eternity. Bless us tonight, then, we pray, as we once again come to your word. And when we come to some of the 
difficulties, the, some of the dark matters that are brought before us in it, uh, some of uh, the references that we find difficult to understand and sometimes even to accept. O Lord God, give us a receptive heart, we pray. Give us to trust in your wisdom, to trust in your knowledge, uh, to trust in your capacity to do us good, even when we fail to understand your doings. We thank you, O Lord, that we also are able to pray for others along with ourselves. We pray tonight for the people we belong to, and not only for ourselves as a congregation and as families and for our individual lives. We pray tonight, Lord, for our nation and indeed for the whole world of humanity that we belong to. We pray especially at this time, as we so often do in these days, O Lord, for our present circumstances. We pray in regard to the restrictions that are laid upon us through this COVID infection. And Lord, we pray as this pandemic has overtaken the world and when we find, Lord, so much uh, about it that causes us to be despondent and uncertain. Lord, we pray that you would lift up our eyes as the psalmist himself did to the hills. From where does my strength come, he asked. My strength comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Lord, we ask that as the creator of all things, we pray that you would rescue us, help us to see our need of you, help us to see that we cannot manage life on our own, that we cannot especially overcome these great providences and grievous providences that come the way of the world from time to time. O Lord, we pray that as we cry unto you tonight, help us to continue to do so until you will come and manifest your power and help us to trust in you as one who alone is able to conduct us safely through the things of time and into eternity. Remember as we pray in our lives as families and homes, bless our children, bless our young people. Lord, be with them during these critical times as well. Teach them your ways, show them your paths. Give them to know, Lord, that as they put their trust in you, so you will deal with them in accordance with your covenant promises. We ask that you bless parents and grandparents who seek to raise young people in the knowledge of the Lord. We ask, Lord, that that may have a permanent and everlasting effect through your blessing, uh, through the work of your Spirit. We ask your blessing for all tonight uh, who mourn the passing of loved ones. We know, Lord, that even in recent times we have had a bereavement amongst our families and congregations in our communities. We pray for them. We ask, O oh Lord, that you'd continue to protect us from this virus. We give thanks for the measure of protection you have given us in the island so far. We pray that that will continue, not, Lord, uh, we, ask, we don't ask this in a selfish way, but we ask, Lord, out of thanksgiving and out of a concern that you would continue to protect us. And remember other areas of our country, O oh Lord, uh, where uh, uh, conditions uh, are much different to what we here experience, especially in these areas of the country where the virus has once again come to uh, show an alarming increase. O oh Lord, bless them, we pray, who suffer from it and the families affected. Bless the health services who deal with it. Grant, Lord, that they may not be overwhelmed, that you will bless and encourage those who may feel at this time that they are near being overwhelmed. And, O oh, oh Lord, we ask that uh, you would further equip them with health, with strength themselves, 
to deal with those who are ill. Grant your blessing, Lord, we pray now to us. As we confess our sin, we do pray, Lord, that you would receive us graciously and forgive and pardon our iniquity and cleanse us from all the defilement of our sins. Keep us in that straight path of obedience to you. Receive our thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, children, I'd like to just uh, say another word or two to you about worship. We began looking at that a few weeks ago. We looked at whom do we worship, and we saw God alone is to be worshipped. Um, we asked uh, then the question, uh, well, um, as, as God is to be worshipped, why is he to be worshipped? And we saw he's to be worshipped because he's our creator and because he's also our saviour through Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to ask the question, how do we worship God? And one or two verses that help us to uh, look at that from John chapter 4. This is Jesus talking to the woman of Samaria, as we usually as he spoke to the woman of Samaria in chapter 4 of John and verse 23. This is what we read. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. How do we worship God? We worship him firstly, of course, through Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ, we worship him honestly and sincerely. On another occasion, uh, in Matthew chapter 15, we find Matthew describing another occasion when Jesus met with the scribes and Pharisees who had no time for Jesus and they were accusing him of breaking certain of the commandments or rules that they themselves had made up. Um, and what he said to them at that time was that he was comparing them to those that Isaiah spoke of. This people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what God meant by that was that worship is a lot more than just an outward use of words. We can do that. We can read the Bible. We can sing the words of the Psalms, whatever we're singing to God. But what God wants is the worship that comes from our hearts. Worship that is honest and sincere, where our heart, where our soul is really engaged. So we do it honestly and sincerely. We do it, secondly, with what God commands. Because God has specified in his word in the Bible what things we are to use in God's own worship. And there are four, especially, four elements of worship that we might say are always part of worship as far as possible. First of these is praise. We sing praise to God. And although we give praise to him in prayer as well, it's especially in singing praise that we praise the Lord and express our thanks and our indebtedness to him. The second element is that of prayer. We've just been praying to God and that is always a part of our worship, whether we're worshipping God by ourselves on our own or as a congregation, or as a group of people in a family, we always include prayer. We pray for God's blessing. We express our thanks to God in prayer. Uh, we pray that God will guide us. We pray that he'll protect us. All the things that are right for us to pray, but that's part of our worship. The third element, along with praise and prayer, is reading. Reading 
God's word. We always include reading the Bible in our worship, whether again it's individual or together, but it's always an important feature of our worship. And where you find worship described in the Bible, people described as gathered for worship, there's always a reading of God's word. And along with that, fourthly comes hearing God's word. Now, of course, you hear it when it's read, but you also hear it when it's preached. And that's the business that God has given to us as preachers of the gospel. He's called us to preach the gospel, that's to preach the word of God. That's really just trying to take what's there in the word of God and explain it as God gives us the ability to do so. And so these four things are always part of worship, especially worship when we're gathered together. Praise and prayer and reading and preaching. And along with that, sometimes we have baptisms and also the Lord's Supper. And they fit into our worship as well because God requires that we do these as part of our worship for his own glory. So that's how we worship God, honestly and sincerely. But Jesus was saying there, of course, they worship him in spirit and in truth. We need God's Holy Spirit so that we will worship God properly. And we will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not just honestly and sincerely, but through Jesus and by the Spirit of God helping us and guiding us through our worship. So let's now say the Lord's Prayer together. Again, we'll say it just thinking over the words as we pray them, because they are a real prayer that God has given us uh, to say. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now our second reading is in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. This is the passage we're going to look at tonight, the whole chapter. Ecclesiastes, book of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honour, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that the stillborn child is better off than he, but it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. But what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. 
and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? But who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now I must confess that uh, preparing to preach from this chapter was challenging, to say the least. It's uh, a chapter that has many difficult references in it. Uh, it's a chapter that uh, is itself full of things that are difficult to understand and deal with. Yet, of course, because it's there in the Bible, it's a chapter that must profit us and benefit us as we come to look at it. And I hope that will be the case tonight and that we will be able to take from the chapter uh, things which will encourage us because what he's really doing is, in a sense, addressing discouragement and giving directions to the discouraged. Now, there's much in the Bible, as you well know, uh, that addresses the discouraged. In fact, a feature of some of the biggest doctrines that God gives us to know in the Bible, uh, some of, one of the features of, of the use of those doctrines is that they are addressed to our discouragements. For example, um, the way in which the Thessalonians were uh, taught by, by, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, that they should not worry about those who had passed on, who had died no longer in this life, with reference to the coming of Christ again. There was obviously uh, a question, at least in Thessalonica, what's, what's going to happen to those when Jesus comes? Will they be part of what happens at his return? And of course, Paul was saying, of course they will, because there's such a thing as the resurrection. They'll be raised from the dead and go up to meet with the Lord in the air. And so Paul finishes that passage Wherefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. God has given us even the biggest teachings, the biggest doctrines of the Bible of his truth, so as to encourage us, to direct us, uh, to give to us something of an indication as to how he would have us to live and approach life. Remember, we're looking for, uh, Ecclesiastes is looking for the meaning or purpose to human life. And in this passage in chapter 6, he deals with three puzzles, we might call them, three puzzles of human life, but he deals with them in a way that shows that these puzzles are very often perplexing and discouraging and really gives us, uh, at times, much pain. Um, it's important for us to remember that the starting point throughout Ecclesiastes is life under the sun. We've taken that to be indicative of, of life if you leave God out of the picture. Life here on earth and just confining it to that without really paying reference to God at all. And that's really how he's approaching this chapter as well. And of course, all of these chapters move towards the final uh, emphasis in, uh, in Ecclesiastes in the final chapter to remember our Creator. Ecclesiastes sometimes makes the dark things of life almost intolerably dark. But the reason for that is so that we will become convinced all the more of our need of God. Amongst this darkness and these dark things that he sometimes makes so dark and so difficult, he just drops down, just like you would find perhaps a hook with a little bit of bait on it, going down into the darkness of the ocean. 
And here is Ecclesiastes just dropping these little references to God, not in any way expanding them all the way through, although he's more and more coming to uh, introduce God to us. But as he deals with these dark things, and as he drops these little references to God, the design of that, you see, and this is what we have to pray for, that the more we come to appreciate the darkness of our darkness, the darkness of our sin, the darkness of life without God, the more we will appreciate our need of God and be convinced that we simply cannot face life in this world or in eternity without him. So what are these three puzzles? Well, we can just divide it this way. First of all, he speaks about material abundance without enjoyment. That's verses 1 to 6. Material abundance without enjoyment. Then he speaks, thirdly, uh, secondly, about much toil without fulfilment. Verses 7 to 9. Thirdly, many questions without answers. Verses 10 to 12. Material abundance without enjoyment much toil without fulfillment, many questions without answers. Let's look at these very briefly. Verses 1 to 6, material abundance without enjoyment. Here is the man, God is saying, he gives him, God is giving him wealth, possessions and honour so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Now, you've opened your Christmas presents on uh, Christmas morning. We've done that as adults, we've done it as children as well. And you know what it's like when a child opens a present and realises that's exactly what I asked for. I'm so pleased about that. And the, pass the package is opened and for a time the child is just delighted with that. But you know very well it soon wears off. Just as it does for ourselves as adults. Something new is given to us. We enjoy it, it's wonderful. Then we hear about an improved version of it. We hear something as an alternative and we want something else. We want it to be supplemented. We want it to be replaced by something better. That is what we're like. That is what life is like. That's the realism that Ecclesiastes is dealing with. And that translates very often into an appetite for things in a wrong kind of way. And remember, uh, how Lot's wife is spoken of in the Bible, uh, in the passage in Genesis, but also Jesus mentioned her in the Gospel of Luke, remember Lot's wife, he said, and uh, Luke 17, where Lot's wife is an example of not really looking back or hankering back to things that would actually trip us up in our spiritual journey. Apparently, there's uh, we visited uh, Pompeii some years ago just on a, on a holiday trip, and uh, came to see to see Pompeii and uh, one of the features of Pompeii as it's been excavated is um, as the volcanic ash fell so quickly on top of that town people were wouldn't let, use the word frozen because of course they were they were essentially they were just burnt or asphyxiated to death by the ash but many of the bodies were just left preserved if you like like stones but with the shape of the body, even sometimes with the expressions on the face and where the hands were reaching out to something. And there's one of a woman there that was obviously heading for the exit, but her hand was stretched out towards a bag of pearls. And she was overtaken by, just like Lot's wife, by the volcanic ash that took her life. That's what 
We're always like as human beings and we were always looking for just that little bit extra. We saw the last time um, in chapter 5 how, how that's so important to, to recognise that, that um, uh, we have to enjoy the things we have rather than just hanker for more and keep on hankering for more. Here is the man who had it all, but God uh, does not give him. He does not give him uh, the power to enjoy them. Now that reminds us of something very important. Even if we have everything we could possibly desire like this person, in order to enjoy these things properly, in other words, make a proper use of them and really benefit truly from them, we need God in our lives. We need the blessing of God. God has to make them profitable to us. We cannot actually find uh, enjoyment and fulfillment and satisfaction in material things themselves without God coming to bless them to us, without God making us benefit from them properly. Here's the man who had it all, but he didn't enjoy it. He didn't have the enabling from God. And of course, we can never separate God enabling us to enjoy things, as chapter 5 says, we rightly can and should. That can never be detached from our trusting in God from our, our giving our life over to God to be ruled and led by him. In chapter 5, verse 19, um, this is what we read and looked at briefly. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them, so to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. And if that's not the case, then these difficult verses in chapter 6, the, all the way down to, to verse 6, uh, then they really um, uh, are something which we need to reckon with. If we don't enjoy them as the gift of God and in the proper fashion, seeking to glorify God through them, well, it's better, he says, not experiencing life at all. That's really what's behind these very difficult references. God is, God is not being callous to speak about stillborn children, about lives that are shortened and, and, than the average He's not being callous. God is not cruel. God is not really set out here by Ecclesiastes as if he didn't care. It's just his, his way of saying, as Jesus, in fact, himself said on one occasion, better never to have been born than to be in the position of one who would uh, betray him. Well, better for that man never to have been born. What he's saying here is if we're going to waste our lives, if we're not going to benefit from God's gifts, it would be better, in, in a sense, he says, that we were not born at all. And when you come to think of the difficulties, the trials, the, uh, the pains of life, not to benefit from them, well, he's saying, there's no point. What is the point? For everyone at last goes to the same place, even though we live a thousand years. So really, Ecclesiastes is leading us there step by step to God, back to God. The fear of God uh, that he referred to earlier in chapter 5 and verse 7. God is the one you must fear. We mentioned briefly that the fear of God is, the, uh, is to live in, in respect, in, in honour, uh, in obedience, in love. Love is really at the heart of the fear of God. Uh, not hatred, not being afraid in the wrong way of God, but to love God. And when you love God, you have the beginning of enjoyment there. 
That's the root. That's the secret of enjoying the good things God gives, the things of this life itself even. To love God, to recognize God and his place in blessing them to us. We, we read in Philippians chapter 4, um, these verses that uh, Paul himself referred to being content. And he's talking there about the Philippians actually having made a collection for him or uh, having sent uh, uh, material things to him to, to benefit him. He says, very kind of you. I know that you weren't previously able to do it. But he said, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. You see, Paul is saying, and this is long after he's been converted, 20 years at least, but what he's saying is, I have learned. It didn't come to him overnight. There were struggles in Paul's own life and reckoning with God's providence. But he's now saying, I have learned. I've come to learn um, to be content. I know how to be brought low, to do without things, in other words. I know how to abound, to have an abundance. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why? I can do all things through him, through Jesus, through God, who strengthens me. That's the key also that we're given in Ecclesiastes. He's making the darkness seem so intolerably dark. The difficulties seem so insurmountable. The problems seem so great and us so incapable of surmounting them or benefiting from them. And if we don't bring God into the picture, that's how it is. But when we do, enjoyment begins when God has his rightful place in your life and in mine. Material abundance without enjoyment. Secondly, he's talking about much toil without fulfillment from verse 7 to verse 9. Now he's saying here, he's recognising that we have to work in order to provide for ourselves. He's saying here, um, uh, very bluntly, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What you eat today is not going to be sufficient to stave the hunger of tomorrow. We have to work in order to eat, to provide for our family, and for many other reasons besides. Now, the Bible isn't here giving us a, a negative approach to work. The Bible is actually very firmly against laziness, against indolence, against the kind of attitude that says, well, I'm just going to take it easy, I don't need to work. Work is just something for the skivvies of this world. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 6 to 12, um, you find uh, Paul there actually dealing with that same question of, of work, where he says, we command you, brothers, in the name of Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give in you in ourselves an, an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you, walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. 
nosy about other people's lives and not bothering even to work. Now, of course, that doesn't at all uh, mean that God doesn't understand the problems of unemployment or that he's not sympathetic to those who cannot find work or have lost their work. And that's especially relevant uh, during this crisis with the COVID-19 pandemic. But what he's saying is, as a principle, this is important to human life. We work so that we will eat, so that we will benefit materially and financially from that. And in fact, work was indeed an important aspect of the creation setting that man was given when God created him. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read that God, having made the man, he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to dress it. The work didn't begin after man became a sinner, after man became um, uh, entered into uh, enmity with God and lost his fellowship with God. Work was always a part of man's existence, of man's humanity. That's what God intended always for him. That's what he required of him. But what he's saying here is there is no real fulfillment in work itself any more than there is in the mere possession of material things. There is no fulfillment in work itself without God, without the blessing of God, without reference to God. If you just extract work and look at work as a concept in itself, and you just leave God out of the picture, doing what Ecclesiastes is doing, looking at it under the sun, it very often becomes a weariness. It becomes tedious. It becomes a drudgery. And this is uh, what Paul again refers to in Colossians, where he speaks there of uh, how uh, um, the basic flaw for, most, for many people, if not most people, is that they don't refer to God or make work uh, something that has an important reference to God and to a relationship with God. What did he say to Colossians? Well, this is what he said. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The basic flaw in a secular approach, in an unbelieving approach, in an atheistic approach to work, is that it has no reference to God, and therefore because it has no reference to work being as unto God and serving the Lord Christ, very often it really leads to weariness and drudgery and boredom and lack of fulfilment. And that's what, um, what uh, Ecclesiastes is actually saying here. Um, his appetite is not satisfied just by simply having work to do, looking at work in itself. Let me just refer you to uh, something that John Murray, Principles of Conduct, the name of the book, um, by Professor John Murray. And he was dealing with that passage in uh, Colossians, um, which is a proper attitude to work, a believing attitude to work in the fear of God. Um, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is it. No consideration is more relevant to our modern labour situation, that, from whatever angle it may be viewed, than the necessity of having the worker imbued with this attitude of soul. Its widespread absence 
is our basic economic ill. In other words, John Murray was saying, what a huge difference it would make throughout the world if people in that work approached it in a way that said, I'm doing this for the glory of God. I'm doing this because God has given me this privilege. I'm doing this because I want Jesus to be glorified through it. I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ, whether I'm actually at the top of a boardroom, whether I'm the manager of the biggest company in the world, whether I'm CEO of it, or whether I'm just way down the bottom of the, 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 the ladder as far as labour is concerned, makes no difference. Paul is not concerned with these things. He's saying, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And when we do, it transforms, as John Murray puts it, not only our attitude to work, but the whole work situation itself. It is, as he put, the absence of that is our basic economic ill. Isn't that the case? As you look out over society today. So he's talking about material abundance without fulfilment. Secondly, much toil, uh, with uh, material abundance without enjoyment. Uh, much toil without fulfilment. And thirdly, very briefly, he's talking here about many questions without answers in verses 10 uh, to 12. Now again, he's not suggesting for a moment that we shouldn't be asking deep questions. It's not wrong to ask questions. It's not wrong to have a sincere inquiry. Again, going back to the Garden of Eden, there was there, um, in the language that's used as it describes the garden, the rivers that flowed out of it, they're set before man there, the prospect of something that he can investigate and explore and find answers to. As life goes on, it didn't happen because man fell. But there's nothing wrong in asking questions, even questions that may not have an answer. And sometimes life is like that. We ask questions understandably. We would like to have an answer for them, but we can't find one. And not even the Bible gives us certain answers. To certain questions that, he, that, that, we, that we ask. But what it does say consistently is that when we don't have answer to the questions that we ask much as we would desire, that does not give us grounds to disbelieve or to reject faith in God. You know, some people you'll hear them saying, well, if it's the God of the Old Testament that you believe in, I can accept some of the things Jesus said, but if it's the God of the Old Testament, and if it's the God that leaves people to suffer, uh, that sees children in the world suffering and in poverty, and uh, so the sayings go, uh, and does nothing about it, and does not intervene, I don't want to know that God. That's putting me right off God. And of course, there's no easy answer to these questions. Why does God actually allow that? Why does God leave that to be the case? There's a lot of... Uh, the answer involves human responsibility and human abuse. But it's not an easy thing to answer these questions. However, what Ecclesiastes is saying is, when you don't have the answer to the question, there's no point in standing up and arguing with God or arguing that there can't be a God and certainly not a kind God. Here is in verse 10 what he says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And the one stronger than he 
and commentators take to refer to God. He's really saying here, uh, whatever has come to be has already been named. In other words, he's taking us under the sovereignty of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, what God himself has in completeness and perfection. And many words of arguing with him, many words of uh, challenging him, many words of asking questions and disputing with God, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to actually change God's will, not going to actually change his mind or his purpose. Here's the question, the key question for Ecclesiastes that he's asking and would have us to ask is, who knows what is good or what is best for human beings? Secularism would say, I do. I have that capacity as a human being. I know what's best for me. And I want to be left to be free to explore that and to seek that that will be fulfilled. Ecclesiastes is saying, only God does, but God does perfectly. Who knows what is good for you tonight and what is good for me? God does, only God does. But you don't need anybody else to know, because within God's knowledge exists everything you require by way of providing for you. Remember how uh, Paul wrote again, this text just came to my mind just now, in Romans chapter 12, um, where Paul is dealing with how we are to offer ourselves, our, our, our very selves to God, uh, bodies, he puts it there, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, that's transformed from focusing on self and being governed by self. Be transformed that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. And then what does he say? What is good and acceptable and perfect. Because God's will for us as his people is good is what is acceptable, what is beneficial, what is good for us. Life can seem intolerably dark. Life can feel desperately burdensome, and it is at times. And Ecclesiastes is honest. You know, that's one of the great things about the Bible. It's sheer honesty. It's realism. There are no pretenses here. It doesn't try to pull the wool over your eyes. It doesn't try to suggest things are different to what they really are. It doesn't pretend that human life is easy all the time. It doesn't pretend um, or hide from us the fact that there are areas of darkness, of pain, of perplexity in human life. But what he does say is even if it feels frustrating and pointless and empty, it makes a huge difference. All the difference in the world if you include God in it. If you include God properly in it, if you include believingly that God is the master of the situation and that he knows what he's doing, even if we don't, that he is in charge of it, even if we cannot be, that he will bring good out of it, even when that's impossible for us. All the puzzles of life, friends, amount really to showing us our need of God, our material abundance without enjoyment. 
we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Much toil without fulfilment, we can actually work as to the Lord and not for men. And that's the key to our contentment and fulfilment. And the many questions without answer, well, we relate that to God. We bring them to him. We tell God, as the psalmist so often honestly does, Lord, how long shall this be? Tell me. And you know, one of the great things about a proper living, believing relationship with God is that you can pour out before him whatever is in your heart, in whatever way you want to do it. And it's guaranteed that God will understand, that God will help, that God indeed is delighted to come to our aid. May he bless to us once again his word. Let's pray. Lord our God, we give thanks that your word directs us to yourself. It is your word that shows us ourselves and our, our uh, sinfulness, uh, the darkness of our mind. It shows us too, Lord, the perplexing and difficult things that we have in providence. Help us never to doubt you, to doubt your wisdom. Help us never to discount your help. Help us never to conclude, as some do, uh, that God cannot exist seeing such things are in existence. Help us to trust you. Help us to cleave to you daily. Help us to, to see our lostness without you. Help us, Lord, to see how poor we are without your riches. Grant these mercies to us now and receive us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to conclude our service now singing once again in Psalm 43. This time in the Scottish Psalter, Psalm 43, and verses 3 to 5, the last four verses to the tune, Belmont. O send thy light forth and thy truth, let them be guides to me, and bring me to thine holy hill, even where thy dwellings be. And the psalm goes on to reckon with the perplexing, vexing, disquieting thoughts that he has in him. He's honest enough to express it to God. And still come to say, still trust in God. For him to praise good cause I yet shall have. He of my countenance is the health, my God that doth me save. So Psalm 43, O send thy light forth and thy truth. O send thy light forth and thy truth.
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you, now and evermore. Amen. <clears throat> Once again we're grateful to you for joining us for this service. I trust God will bless to us his own truth, his own word, and that uh, he will keep you in these days to come safe and well. And to his name and his, pray his, his glory be all the praise. Thank you.